Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Small children, babies, we have a quality child care available for you to take your children to as well. So this might be a good time to enroll your kids in the nursery, and that would be a wonderful thing to do during this time. The rest of you can open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And as I said last week, 2 Timothy 2. So we're going to be in 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I really enjoy watching women's gymnastics during the Summer Olympics. I think it's an amazing sport. I don't know if you remember Dominique Manciano. I don't know if anybody remembers Dominique Manciano. She was the youngest American at the age of 14 to win an Olympic gold medal. Manciano was part of the Magnificent Seven back in the Atlanta Summer Olympics in 1996 under the tutelage of Bella Caroli. Now, Dominique would later tell stories about how she felt emotionally abused by Bella Caroli. She would say that there were times when her injuries were not really paid attention to and she would practice in deep pain. Well, four years later, in the Olympic trials in 2000, she was ready to make a comeback and to, and to be this great Olympic star. Well, she got injured. She couldn't jump. She couldn't walk properly. She couldn't even bend her knee. So she was devastated that her Olympic career was over. And so she had to undergo many surgeries, cortisone shots. 2001, she walked away from the Olympics. Now, she tried to make another comeback in 2005, but she got injured again. And so she had to basically walk away with a career-ending injury with such a, a young, promising talent. Now, she wrote about this in her memoir called Off Balance. And I want you to think about a 14-year-old girl in the Summer Olympics winning a gold medal, all of the emotional, physical, even spiritual struggle that a young person goes through in order to train for the Olympics and then to suffer the hardship of having a career-ending injury. We've known of many sports um, athletes who have had career-ending injuries when they're at the peak of their game and it's, it's sad to see all the time and energy they put into that. Energy, time, suffering, Olympics, training, why do I bring this up to you this morning? Well, it has a lot to do with our passage of Scripture before us. Last week, we began our study of just these 13 verses in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And if you remember, the main idea comes from verse 1, where Paul says, Be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. That frames everything that we're talking about. Grace, being strengthened by grace, being empowered by grace, having God's sustaining grace be what gets us through the Christian life. And then we looked at the first command that Paul gave to Timothy. And this is what we focused on last week, and that was in verse 2. Entrust, entrust 
others who will faithfully entrust others who will faithfully entrust others and we talked about the importance of having a disciple making ministry a disciple making process in our lives to where we're handing off the faith to the next generation we're passing the baton if you will of the faith to the next generation and so for this morning we're going to look at the the second big command that paul gives timothy but let's just read together second timothy verses one through seven this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Now, that's the main idea that frames the entire uh, passage of Scripture, being strengthened by God's grace. And what you've heard from me and the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's where we spent our time last week. Here's where we're going to spend our time this week, verses 3 through 7. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In these short passages of Scripture, let me just succinctly give you Paul's main point in a sentence. It is simply this. We are faithful for the future by suffering together for the gospel. Suffering together. Notice how verse 3 starts. Share in suffering. In the original language, it says Suffer together. Suffer side by side. Join in the suffering of another person. And Paul is specifically talking to Timothy, saying, Timothy, I want you to share in my suffering because I'm in prison right now in Rome, but the principle is the same. We should share in suffering. Now go back to chapter 1, verse 8 for a moment. Paul's already addressed this. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. There it is again. Share in suffering in the gospel by the power of God. Power of God, strength of God. You and I need strength. We need power in order to share together in suffering. Now that's, that's counterintuitive. We do not like to suffer. Anybody here like to suffer? Anybody here welcome persecution? Anybody here love to go through hardships and struggles? You see, we want ease. We want comfort. We want things to go our way. None of us ever wants to go through any type of adversity. But that's not the Christian life. Don't let anybody ever sell you a bill of goods that once you become a Christian, all your problems will go away. In fact, you may have more. Listen to what Jesus said about those that would follow him. John 15, 18 through 20. And then after this, you're like, thanks a lot, Jesus. But here we go. If the world hates you, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my words, they will also keep yours. Jesus says we'll be hated. We will be persecuted. Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Through many tribulations. And then 2 Timothy 3.12, the same book that we're looking at. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're going to go through suffering. We're going to go through hard times. We're going to go through adversity. We're going to go through tribulation. The world's going to hate us. We're going to be persecuted. This is what you signed up for when you became a Christian, whether you knew it or not. That's why it's so important to be strengthened by grace strengthened by God's power. It's not going to be easy, the Christian life. Being faithful for the future is going to require sacrifice. It's going to require commitment. It's going to take us out of our comfort zones. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. And in order to illustrate the level of suffering that we would have to endure, Paul gives Timothy three analogies, three illustrations. Three examples, and, and they're examples from his life back in that ancient world, but I think we understand them too. You've got the soldier, you've got the athlete, you've got the farmer. Now, we understand those three things. We have athletes and soldiers and farmers today. So, the common metaphor around, or the common theme around these three metaphors is this. Persevering through adversity, suffering, training, discipling, making sure that you're ready to suffer because God will reward, God will bless you through that suffering. So let's first of all look at the soldier. Verse 4, or actually verse 3 says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Okay, so here's the first thing that we need to understand. First of all, we share in suffering with a single-minded focus. A single-minded focus. Notice what verse 4 says. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Entangled. I want you to think about that word, entangled. Wasn't there a movie called, uh, ta- was it called Tangled? Not entangled, Tangled, with a girl with the long hair. Think about tangling up your hair. There's only one other place in the Bible that this word entangled is used, and it's referring to false teachers who get entangled in apostasy and in judgment, and they lead people astray. It's in 2 Peter 2.20. Peter's talking about false teachers. He says, if they've If after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Peter here is talking about people that get entangled in the affairs of the world, entangled in sin. And Paul says no civilian or no soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. Now, the word entangled outside the Bible was often used of a a, a rabbit, or a small bird or a sheep getting entangled in a trap or getting entangled in um, like thorns. Think of that imagery for a moment. You're a happy sheep and you're walking along, grazing, eating grass, 
not a care in the world, and you get into this um, briar patch with all these thorns and thistles, and you're entangled and you're stuck. I've fallen and I can't get up, but you can't get out. You're entangled. That's the imagery here that Paul is telling Timothy as a good soldier, don't get sidetracked. Timothy, no matter what happens to you, no matter what type of suffering you go through, no matter what this world throws at you, no matter how adverse things get, keep that single-minded focus. Don't get entangled. Don't get sidetracked. Don't, don't, don't get distracted from the gospel. Don't swerve off the path of righteousness. It reminds me of what the writer of Hebrews tells uh, the Hebrew church in Hebrews chapter 12 about running the race. He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, that sin that entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, that single-minded focus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Now, these entanglements don't necessarily have to be bad things. They can be good things. They can be your job. They can be your spouse. They can be some good things that you can get distracted from. Distracted from your devotion to Christ. So really, the whole issue here is wholehearted devotion to Jesus as your commanding officer. When you enlist in the military, or when you graduate from a service academy... You don't have much say in where you're going to serve, do you? Once you become enlisted or you graduate or you're an officer in the military, you have a commanding officer. And what does that commanding officer give you? Orders. I grew up in Colorado Springs, and that's a military town, and it's amazing to me. One time I was going to the um, Air Force, this is not even my notes, it just reminded me. One time I was a teenager, not a teen, yeah, I was, no, I was a college student. I was a freshman in college, and um, we went up to the, the, the there was a, a ministry that was taking place up on the Air Force Academy, and we went up there for a Bible study, and I remember walking around the corner, and I'm like dressed in street clothes, and I had all these cadets at attention that stand there like that, because they thought I was an upperclassman. And so they were ready to salute me, and they thought I was an upperclassman. And I thought, that's weird. I have all these people saluting me. And I thought it was pretty cool. I could have told them to do whatever. Hey, get down and do 20 push-ups. They probably would have done it right then. You don't question your commanding officer. And that's the whole issue here. Notice what it says. Verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. What's his aim? His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Your aim is to please your commanding officer. Now, as a Christian, as a Christian soldier... Who's your commanding officer? Who's our commanding officer? It's Jesus. So the question then becomes, is your life one that aims to please Jesus? Do you live in such a way that you're not sidetracked from that single-minded focus on Jesus? What does Jesus expect of us as his commanding officer? He expects nothing less than complete attention, complete devotion. Stay on the mission. Stay devoted to me. No matter what the cost, he's the Lord. He's the commanding officer. We need to please him with that single-minded focus. Now, I've not seen the recent movie Hacksaw Ridge by Mel Gibson. Some of you may have seen it. I have not seen it yet, but I do know the story. It tells the story of Desmond Doss. 
Desmond Dawes single-handedly saved 75 men in Okinawa in one of the bloodiest battles in World War II, all without firing a gun. Now, the thing about this young man was that he was a conscientious objector. He was the only person to be on the front enemy lines in World War II without a, without a weapon. So he basically, from what I understand, carried these wounded soldiers to safety on the battle lines without ever firing a gun. And, I, and he won the Congressional Medal of Honor for single-handedly evacuating these wounded soldiers. Talk about single-minded focus. My mission is to get these men to safety no matter what the cost. That's what a soldier does. I've got to follow the mission, follow my commanding officer, no matter what the cost. No deviation, no being sidetracked. I've got a single-minded vision. I've got a single-minded focus. That's why Psalm 119.10 is so important. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Wholehearted, single-minded devotion to Jesus as our commanding officer. Our aim is to please him with a single-minded focus. That's one of the ways that we suffer as a soldier. Now, Paul gives another analogy. Not just the soldier, but the athlete. So here's the second way we suffer. Secondly, we share in suffering through training for godliness. Training for godliness. Now notice what verse 5 says. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. An athlete. Now, Paul must have liked the Olympics because he uses athletic imagery all throughout his epistles. He uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27. Listen to what Paul says there, very similar to what he says here. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Self-control, exercising for godliness. I'm not boxing as one beating the air, but I, I'm, training my, I'm training myself spiritually. And then in 1 Timothy 4, 7-8, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The athlete competes. That's where we get our word athletics. Competes according to the rules. Now, what does it mean that the athlete competes according to the rules? There could be a double meaning that most scholars look at according to this passage of Scripture. One is the way it looks at face value. They compete according to the rules. There are certain rules for certain events, and as a good athlete, in order to win, you've got to not break the rules. There's also what was going on back during that time of the Olympics. If you were to sign up to be in the Olympics, you had to make a pledge to Zeus, the false god, that you would train for 10 months straight, intense 10-month training, and that you would be ready and prepared to compete. Either way you look at it, an athlete in the Olympics does what? Trains hard, strenuous. Think of all the training 
that goes into an Olympic event or an athlete. All the time commitment. And Paul here speaks of the reward. The, the victor's crown, the wreath. You've seen the wreath that they wear. That's what they're talking about back then. I want you to think about how much time and energy athletes put into winning. How much time do you think Michael Phelps spent in the pool? How many laps? During his elite training times, he would spend eight hours in the pool a day. That's a lot. Think about how many times or hours LeBron James has spent shooting a basketball. How many times Tom Brady has thrown a football or Aaron Rodgers or any elite athlete? How much time do they put? Now, there's natural talent involved, but these athletes don't just get by on natural talent. They put time and energy and training to become elite. How much training do they put? They eat, they drink, they sleep the sport. They're passionate about what they do. When they're in training, they're in training. It's all that they do. They're consumed by it. I live for the Olympics. I train for the Olympics. I eat for the Olympics. I sleep for the Olympics. I listen for the Olympics. Everything I do is consumed with winning the gold medal. Even if it takes extreme stress on your body. But Paul here says, listen, that's great. The Olympics is great. Running on a treadmill is great. Uh, Being an elite athlete, that's great. If if that's what you, if that's what God's called you to do, if you want to, you know, get that gym membership and start lifting weights, that's great. Physical training is great. Get in shape. Don't be a couch potato. But, he says, training for godliness is what we're supposed to be about. Training yourself for godliness. Let me ask you a question. Does this type of training characterize you in your relationship with Christ? In other words, are you like the good athlete, spiritual athlete, where you eat, sleep, drink, and consume by training yourself for godliness, for growing in godliness, for being who God has called you to be in obedience? So one of the ways that you suffer is as a good soldier, you go where your commanding officer tells you, even if it hurts, you, your aim is to please him, you're, you're, you have a single-minded focus. Another way you suffer is you train yourself for godliness. When it's not popular, when it's not comfortable, but you train and you train and, and you, you fill your mind and your heart with things that are going to get you to be growing in Christ, just like that athletic imagery. But then there's the third analogy. You got the soldier. Some of you can relate to that. You got the elite athlete. Some of you can relate to that. But then you got the hardworking farmer. I think more of you can relate to that. The hardworking farmer. And notice what it says there, the hardworking. Hardworking is like really emphatic in the original text there to emphasize the type of farmer that it is. It is verse 6, the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Being a servant of Christ, Timothy, is like a hardworking farmer. It's going to require hard work. So here's the third thing that we see. We share in suffering through grace-empowered hard work. Now, many of you are hardworking farmers. You know what it's like to work hard, to plant the seed, to harvest the crop. Most of you are hardworking farmers. And what happens if you don't plant? You don't reap. 
It's what Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4 says. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Okay. More of you, you guys are more informed and smarter and, and more enlightened about farming than I am. So I'm not going to try to talk about farming here because I'm afraid I'm going to... Some of you come up afterwards like, you know, you kind of got that a little bit wrong. I'm not a farmer. But let me ask you a question. I do understand reaping and sowing. So the question is this. What are you sowing in your life right now spiritually that's going to reap a harvest? What habits, what commitments... What practices are you sowing, are you putting in your life right now that will reap a harvest of righteousness down the road? And there's a reward. There's a reward for this. I don't know how the reward works. Paul says for the athlete that competes, there's the victor's crown. For the hardworking farmer, there's the reward of having the crop. God will reward your faithfulness. Now, it may be material, It may not. It may be an immediate spiritual blessing or you may never see it until you get to heaven. But there is a reward. And don't ask me how it all works. There is a reward for your training, your suffering, your adversity that God rewards you with. It may just be in heaven. Now, notice what Paul does in verse 7. Timothy, I want you to think over. Constantly, continually, Be thinking over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In the original language, it means listen up, Timothy. I find that interesting. Paul's just told him these three things, and he says, Timothy, I want you to pay attention to what I just said. Well, you just told me, Paul. It's one thing. Here's here's what what it is. It's one thing to be told about suffering. It's another thing to go through suffering. All of us can have head knowledge. Oh, you're going to suffer. Okay, that may happen one day. You're going to have adversity. That's for somebody else. I think what Paul's saying to Timothy is, listen, you're going to face it. You're going to go through it, and you need to be prepared. So I want these images, these metaphors to be sunk down deep into your soul, Timothy. Think about yourself as being a a good soldier when those times get tough. Think about yourself being that hard-training athlete. Are you training yourself? Are you preparing yourself? Think about being the hardworking farmer. I want you to think about these things, Timothy, because adversity is coming. Hardships are coming. You do not need to be surprised by these. Now think about the opposite of these for a moment. What's the opposite of a good soldier? A bad soldier. A deserter. One who does not stay focused on the mission. One who disobeys his commanding officer. Eddie Slovak is known as the most famous deserter in World War II, and really in American history. He was in France with the 28th Infantry, and when the Germans started firing, he got scared and he ran off. He deserted. He left. He was AWOL for six weeks. And then he came back and tried to apologize. And actually, his commanding officer said, we will give you a second chance if you will continue to fight. Do not run away again. He said, no, I don't want to fight. And the commanding officer said, well, you're going to have to face court-martial. You're going to have to face, your, you know, face trial. And he said, I would rather face trial than to go out and fight. So he faced trial. He was court-martialed, and actually he was executed in 1945. He was the first man executed since the Civil War and the last man since for abandoning his post 
He's not a good soldier. He ran away. He didn't have that single-minded focus. Okay, what's the opposite of a hard-working athlete? Well, a couch potato. Someone who just kind of sits there lazily. You know, there's a lot of Christians that think that you're going to grow by osmosis. If I just lay in bed and put the Bible on my head, when I wake up, I will have all this knowledge. No, sometimes you've got to get up at 6, and you've got to set your alarm, and you've got to get on your knees, and you've got to have a plan, and you've got to pray even though you don't like it, and you've got to read your Bible. Growth doesn't happen unless you put something into it. Grace-empowered training. It doesn't just automatically happen by osmosis. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I fought the good fight. Listen to how Peter puts it. 2 Peter 1, 5-8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and you are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make every effort to supplement your faith with these things so that you're not unfruitful, you're not ineffective. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. You've got to have some grace-empowered training yourself for godliness. What's the opposite of a hard-working farmer? The lazy farmer doesn't plant and expecting a harvest. Just kind of expects things to happen. You put all these three metaphors together of the soldier, <clears throat> the athlete, and the farmer. You've got this passionate, single-minded focus that desires to please Jesus in the midst of suffering. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Notice what Paul says about wisdom and insight. Verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Timothy, when you're going through suffering and you don't know why things are happening to you and you're feeling the heat and you're questioning all these things, God's going to give you an answer. God's going to give you understanding. It may not be the answer you want, Timothy, but God's not going to leave you in the dark. God is going to help you. God's going to give you wisdom. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 2, 5 through 6. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. In the Proverbs, wisdom comes through fearing the Lord. For Timothy, wisdom comes through training yourself for godliness, like we saw in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Train yourself for godliness. So here's the point. You may not like this. God's way of granting you wisdom oftentimes comes through suffering. You want to be a wise person? Suffer a little. You want to be a mature Christian? Go through a time of suffering. 
Suffering is the crucible that God takes Christians through to mature them, to give them wisdom, to grow them in their faith. Because think about it, when things are going good, when things are going great, when things are going comfortably, do you seek the face of the Lord? Or do you just kind of rely upon your own strength? Hey, things are going good. I don't need Jesus. I can do this on my own. No, it's through suffering that God sometimes forces us on our knees to cry out for help. And it's during those times that we grow in wisdom. But notice what he says again, back in verse 3. Share in suffering. You're in this together. Timothy, whether you like it or not, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. You need to share in my suffering. What this means is, is that we were never meant to suffer alone. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. Paul does not say to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to suffer in isolation out on an island by yourself. But a lot of Christians operate that way, don't they? I don't want to bother other people. It's just I'm going I'm to suffer by myself. I don't want to share. I don't want to tell anybody my problems. I'm just going to bear this by myself. That's not the biblical way of suffering. Share together in suffering for the gospel. At this time, I would like to ask Brenda Reyes to come. And she's going to share a testimony about how the Lord has equipped her and blessed her and encouraged her through a time of suffering this past year. So thanks, Brenda, for coming and sharing. And I've got some pre-scripted questions for her. So let me ask you the first question. Tell us about how God has used the body of the manual to help you this past year in a really difficult time of suffering. I had to write this out because I didn't know if I could get through it any other way. So bear with me. First, let me say that I came to Sterling almost three years ago because of work. My husband and I were maintaining two residences with him in Burlington most of the time because he worked for the same company. I started attending Emmanuel about two weeks after I moved and was immediately moved and impressed with Pastor Sean's love of the Word and his gift of teaching in a straightforward and understandable way. I sat over near the back um, where I met a wonderful lady who, as time passed, gave this opportunity to talk and has become a precious friend. Shortly after I started attending Emmanuel, I started attending a growth group. Um, I chose that group because they did a verse-by-verse study of the Bible, which I prefer, having found that type of study in the past engages me and helps me grow spiritually in the knowledge of Scripture. Since then, the group has become a support and encouragement to me in many ways. And I'm thankful for all they've done to minister to me and the friendship they've offered. But then small groups are where my husband and I have met most of our friends in our lives. Um, When difficulties started in September of 2015, I knew they were praying for both my husband and me because I'd asked them to. Art had been diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia in 2002 and had been through three courses of chemo at various times over the 14 years since he was diagnosed. His oncologist had started him on a new medication in May that was to control his CLL, but he began to get sick in September with high fevers, low red blood cell counts, and elevated heart rate. In addition to these symptoms, he had developed a rash. His oncologist believed the symptoms 
or a reaction to the new medication. However, his energy level quickly waned, and when he lost his appetite, he also started losing weight. By, no by November, I brought him to Sterling so I could try to take care of him. When his temperature got up to 105, I took him to the ER here in Sterling. They transported him to North Colorado Medical Center where he spent five days while they tried to determine what kind of infection he had. With massive doses of antibiotics, they got his temperature down. With infusions, they got his red blood cell count up. We came home the day before Thanksgiving and he did better for a while. Still, the small group prayed for us. Two days after Christmas, he kept an appointment to see his oncologist in Colorado Springs and was immediately put into the hospital. Again, they searched for an infection because of the elevated fevers. They found nothing, but again, got his fever down with massive doses of antibiotics and got his red cell count up again. This time, he was there for a week and was released, and my growth group continued to pray. When I called the on-call oncologist on January 11th, I was told to bring him back to the hospital in Colorado Springs. We arrived in the afternoon, and he could barely get from the car into the ER. His regular oncologist had retired at the end of December, so he was seen by the on-call oncologist. She immediately assessed that his CLL had gone through a process called Richter syndrome and suspected his symptoms were caused by non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. They put him up, put a port back in, his, back in to start chemo. This time, I talked to Pastor Sean, and he asked to pass on the information to the prayer chain for prayer. That surgery nearly killed him, and he was in ICU after that. He was too weak for chemo. Five days in, they decided to biopsy a lymph node. The next day, we were told he had Hodgkin's lymphoma. Pastor Sean remained in contact. The next day, he was placed on the hospice floor in the hospital. Now the growth group prayed for me and our children. <laughs> Two days later, he went on to be with our Lord. That was a year ago next week. After that, and during this year, God continued to bring support and comfort to me following the death of my husband of 40, 34 years. Strangely enough, on the ride to the Franklin Graham rally at the Capitol in March, it came to my attention in talking with Frank Whateley that his wife was actually from the same town in Texas where I grew up. We were actually in junior high and high school together, just a couple of years apart. Andrea reached out to me, offering me a book on grieving she had written following the death of her husband. She continues to be a source of strength and support, as do the members of my growth group and my sit-by friend. Men from the church also helped me when I first moved all of the things from Burlington up here, and then again when I moved into a house. So this, you know, church has just been, I don't think I could have made it just through this past year without you guys. So why is being connected to a church family so important during times of suffering? Well, you know who your true friends are then, I think. Um, I can't imagine having to go through the past year without you guys. I feel more connected here than any church I have in the recent past. Um, and especially since my kids are not close by, you know, this has been really my family in many ways. Do you have any words of encouragement that you'd like to give to those that may be suffering right now? I'd like to remind them that they're not alone. You know, besides God, who will lift them up, there are people in this church waiting to help. 
and they will, including Pastor Sean, who has a compassionate heart and a listening ear, and I would encourage them to find a growth group to get involved in. Thank you, Brenda. Sure. I appreciate it. Let's give her a hand for... It's amazing the joy of being connected to the body of Christ and how the body of Christ helps during times of suffering. And that's why Paul begins this entire discussion in verse 1, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. What do you and I need when we go through times of suffering? Do you need another pep talk for somebody to tell you, just get your act together? Do you need somebody to say, just look inside yourself and find the strength there? Do you need to go off in isolation and try to work through it on your own? That's not the way the Bible or God has designed us to suffer. Paul says we suffer together. We share in suffering by the grace that God gives us together. Many of you probably never heard of William Cooper. He was a British poet back in the 1700s. Wrote some famous hymns. In 1763, he was studying to become a lawyer. And he was so stressed out by his exams that he really almost wanted to commit suicide. He had a psychotic break. And he did want to commit suicide. So he, he called for a cab, and back then it was a coach. And he told the coach driver, Take me down to the Thames River so I can drown myself. I want to die. Well, providentially that night there was a fog. They could never find the Thames River because the fog was in England. So they drove around for hours and then basically the driver dropped him off and they didn't know where they were. Dropped him off in the fog and it happened to be his own house. Well, later on he was put into a mental asylum where there was a Bible next to his bed, and he began reading about Jesus' death on the cross. And one night, he, he believed in Christ and the cross and, the, and what Jesus had done for him, and he gave his, his life to Christ. Well, he ended up living next door to a famous former slave trader named John Newton. You may know John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton was his pastor and friend for the next 13 years of his life. And many people believe that if it had not been for John Newton's influence in his life, William Cooper would have committed suicide because he was so depressed and had so many bouts with, with depression. But he wrote in a very interesting hymn. This is not a hymn that we sing a lot, but you may have heard of it. The hymn is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Listen to the words. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face.
It's not a matter of if you will suffer. It's when you will suffer. And when you suffer, are you prepared to go through that time? And when you're going through that, it may seem like there's a huge cloud and God is not there. Things are dark. But as the song says, behind that cloud, He's smiling upon you. You may not be able to see it, but as a child, He's smiling upon you. And He may take you through this as a way to grow you more closely to Him, but He's there for you. And so here's the bottom line. We need Christ and we need each other in order to suffer well for the gospel. It's not a matter of if you will suffer. It's a matter of when. And so here's my prayer as your pastor. May we all, whatever degree of suffering that is, may we all suffer well together for His glory. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Specifically right now, for those in our congregation that are suffering, Lord, I know of just a few, and they're all types of suffering, Lord. They're, they're financial, they're physical, they're emotional, they're relational. And Father, the last thing I want anybody to experience when they walk out of this room is that somehow they're alone. So Father, would you grant to those in this room that are suffering an extra measure of grace upon grace, an extra measure of power upon power, And Father, if anybody feels alone or lonely or isolated, Lord, will we surround them as a church? Will we know about their problems? Lord, would you, get, would you just work out the details to where we can suffer together? We can share in the suffering. Lord, for some of us, we may be like a good soldier right now. We have that single-minded focus where we, we, we've, we, we need to please you. For others, we may be like the, the hardworking athlete that's training ourselves for godliness. For others, we may be like the hardworking farmer that's, that's uh, building things into our lives to, to, to reap a harvest. Whatever it is, Lord, help us to suffer together well for your glory. What a testimony it is, Lord, to a watching world when people suffer and they have patience and they display the fruit of the Spirit and they are imbued with grace. It's a beautiful thing, Lord, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Would it be a church that's prepared for suffering? Would it would be a church that helps each other during times of suffering. And Lord, during it all, would we be joyful in our suffering? Would we give you joy in all things? Rejoice! in the Lord always, and again we'll say it, rejoice. So thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy, Lord. Would you minister to us in ways that I can't even know? Only you know. And I thank you that you do that, Lord. 
It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.